So that's Chris Toomey. He's our life journey director, and uh, he's just an encouragement each and every day to work with, and I love hearing how God inspires him through his promises. Um, I'll say this just up front. Uh, as you might be able to tell, I've got that bug that's going around. So if you guys are willing to pretend that I just have an awesome, deep, sexy voice, uh, then I'll just pretend I'm not sick, and we'll get through this morning, and it'll be great. Okay? But um, as we are talking about God's promises, I feel like one of the things is we've got to be real clear about what God actually promises and what God doesn't promise. Um, I'm sure many of you have heard the quote, God helps those who help themselves, right? God did not say that. Benjamin Franklin said that. And frankly, it makes me think that Benjamin Franklin would not have been that good of a guy to be friends with. You know, hey, Ben, I'm running a little short this week. Sorry, man. God helps those who help themselves. Well, fine, Ben. God didn't say that. And as I look around and just look at the state of, of Christian culture and, and what I see in the faith and lives of those around me, I think that there is this uh, impression that God says, I will protect you from suffering. I will spare you from the troubles and evils of this world. There's this idea that the better your faith is, the more prosperous and successful and the fewer struggles you'll have. And so I need to just rip the bandaid off this morning and tell you, God does not say that. He doesn't promise that at all. In fact, uh, in 2 Timothy, uh, we're told that, um, that, that it says, anyone who chooses to follow Christ will be persecuted. Will be, not might be, will be persecuted. Jesus himself in John 16, as he's kind of giving his farewell speech to his disciples, says, I promise you, in this world, you will have troubles. If there's a promise from God that we need to start with this morning, the promise is that we are going to suffer and struggle. And just to be real with you this morning, that kind of sucks. That's not the kind of inspirational God I think we would sometimes prefer to follow or a little more simple to follow. But if the reality is that God says we are going to struggle and have trouble in this world, then it behooves us to figure out what exactly is going on with struggles. We've got to be able to understand them better so that we can maybe see what God is doing in and through those struggles. And so as I prepared this week and just thought through my own reaction to struggles— I broke it down into what I felt were kind of four common assumptions that I myself often find myself making that I see others around me making. And so I want to just kind of address those up front and then let's maybe question how legitimate these assumptions are. The first assumption is this, it's just suffering is bad. And of course it is, right? Suffering's painful, it's no fun, no one chooses suffering, uh, it must be bad. And so the idea that anytime suffering is happening to you, it's a bad thing for bad reasons. But I don't know that that can be uh, accurate enough um, because I think what we're really getting at is that suffering is, is painful. But just like we know with physical pain, not all pain is bad for you, right? You know, the, the physical pain of working out and doing exercises, um, you know, that's pain that, that it, it hurts, but it ultimately results in stronger muscles, right? Healthier living. Uh, and so just because suffering is painful doesn't mean suffering is bad. The second thing kind of flows from the first, which is that suffering disproves God. It's this idea that, well, if there's an all-loving, all-powerful God, um, then he would protect us from suffering, right? He he would spare us. Uh, And if he doesn't spare us, if in fact we do suffer and there is evil and and hard things and struggles in the world, well, then there must not be an all-loving, all-powerful God. Uh, And yet again, I I, I question whether that really does sufficiently explain what's going on with suffering just because... um, it takes away the fact that God might have purposes 
for suffering, right? It's, it's not this either or, well, you know, God either loves us or, or we suffer, but, but maybe there's a purpose, something deeper. Here's where it starts to get a little more personal to me. Suffering is deserved. I actually had a coworker this week. Uh, she, she's had a pretty rough week. Some unfun, um, unpredicted struggles happened. You know, a few things, you know, kids getting sick, uh, and then car got hit by a deer. And, um, and, and as she was just kind of detailing her week to me, you know, she's just saying, oh, all, all this stuff has happened, all this bad stuff, all these struggles. You know, I must have done something really bad this week. And, and I think that's a natural place to go for so many of us. Like, well, if, if bad things are happening, it must be because I deserved it in some way or another. And as bad as that is when it's personal, like, like with my coworker, it gets even more devastating when we start to take this belief, this assumption, and apply it to other people. Because then we look at people and we, we say, oh, bad things are happening to you. You must be a bad person. You must have morally deserved it. You know, we look at um, you know, poor people in, in this country and it's so easy to say, well, it must just be because you're lazy uh, or because you're addicted to drugs or, or because you know, there's something, some moral failing in your life that's resulted in you being poor. Uh, and, and on the flip side, you know, we, we go the other way where if someone's wealthy or successful, it must be because you're a good person. Uh, and yet I, I hope we all know that, um, that that's an overly simplistic take as well, that there are, there are wealthy people and successful people that, uh, that are not morally upright, that did not do anything to deserve their wealth. And there are poor people who are saints and salt of the earth they didn't do anything to deserve it. But, but it's so easy and natural to go here. But I want to just point out that maybe that's not, that's not always what's going on. Uh, and then finally, this idea that suffering is deterministic. Uh, that, and what, what that means is that, is that the quality of our life, the quality of our personhood uh, is actually dictated by our suffering, right? So, so if we have a lot of suffering, we are going to have a bad life. Uh, if we have minimal suffering or we avoid it, then we are going to have a good life. Uh, and, and the suffering itself actually decides whether we're good people, bad people, have a good life or a bad life. Uh, and, and I think that this struggle is summed up really well um, in a TV show that's on right now. It's one of my favorite shows that's on TV right now. It's called The Good Place. And just to set it up for you, um, the blonde uh, woman in, in this clip that I'm about to show you, um, played by Kristen Bell, uh, is a very decidedly mediocre jerk kind of a person. But through some sort of supernatural bureaucratic error, she ends up in the good place. And so here she is in some sort of heaven-like place, uh, surrounded by saints and righteous people and great people, um, but she herself is kind of a dirtbag. Uh, and so she spends much of her time trying to pretend that she belongs because she doesn't want to get sent to the bad place. Um, and then at the, in this clip, she meets someone. This is the brunette woman in the clip. And the brunette woman is someone who spent her entire life on earth as a humanitarian civil rights lawyer, advocating for the needs of the, the starving children in Asia and India uh, and, um, and, and you know, died you know, you know, a life of a martyr uh, doing all this stuff. So you've got the blonde um, who doesn't really deserve to be in the good place. And then you've got the brunette um, who, by all accounts, has lived a holy, pleasing, good life and does deserve. And so listen to this conversation. I can't believe you thought you could pretend to be real Eleanor. She's like a perfect ball of light and you're like a wet pile of mulch. Someone made a person out of wet mulch and leaves and like dead slugs and that's you. Whatever. It's easy when you're just born perfect. My parents were both dirt bags who split up when I was eight. I don't mean to eavesdrop, but did you say your parents got a divorce? Yeah. And that kind of thing really changes a person. I mean, that trauma, it can explain away a lot of behavior. Oh, of course. Your parents are still together, I guess. Oh, actually, um, I, I'm not sure. 
I never met my birth parents. They put me in an empty fish tank and abandoned me at a train station in Bangladesh. <sighs> Luckily, I was found and adopted by a very nice couple, the Shellstrops. Oh, thank God. But then they died when I was four. Bird flu. That's awful. Anyway, orphanage burned down, yada, yada, yada. Made my way to America, yada, yada, yada. Learned English from watching Seinfeld. Put myself through law school and here I am. Huh. And I'm sorry, what, what is it you said happened to you? The same thing that happens to half of all kids in America? <laughs> right, it, it, it's so easy to assume that, uh, that the bad things mean you're going to have a bad life and good don't, but, but we see so many examples, not just in this clip, but in lives around us, that that can't possibly be a sufficient assumption for suffering and struggles in our lives. Because we know the fact is that some people do overcome those struggles and some people do uh, subsume to those struggles and, and they let them define them. And so the, the question becomes, and what I want to wrestle together with you this morning, is what is the difference? What, what, what makes one person have divorced parents and, and become a bad person, and, and one person overcomes such awful trials and become a good person? And so Andy Stanley says this. He, he says in, in all of his experience, the struggle itself is not actually what's decisive to our life and faith. It doesn't, it's actually not about whether you know, someone died or, or whether your parents divorced or bad things happened to you. That's actually not what matters as much as our interpretation of the struggle that dictates its effect on our life. You see, if, if we can interpret the struggle in a way that actually makes sense and meaning to us, then, then a struggle can be something that is a positive in our life and faith. Uh, but if we, if we have a struggle and it feels meaningless and empty, then that's the kind of thing that, that, that breaks down the human spirit and, and results in a life that's not what we would like it to be. And so what I'd like to do this morning is, is let's talk about our interpretation of these struggles. All right, uh, no, we're not. Um, oh yeah, that's fine, we can leave that there. Um, so these are the assumptions we have, but I wanna say that I think in fact that there is something else going on and that these assumptions are incomplete. But before I tell you why, uh, I'd like to first explain to you about a man that you have probably not heard of, and yet you should all be grateful to. Uh, his name is Dr. Ignaz Zemmelweis, uh, and he was a doctor in the 19th century in Hungary. And Dr. Zemmelweis was noticing a real problem uh, at his hospital. You see, this is modern times, right? This is post-enlightenment. Um, this is a place where, you know, they've got steam engines and assembly lines, and they feel pretty good about life. And yet, at the hospitals at this time... Um, Mothers and children in childbirth were dying at an unprecedented rate. So you see, if someone just gave birth kind of the old-fashioned way, you know, with a midwife or, or just on their own, uh, they, they had a pretty decent chance of survival. The, the, the mortality rate was less than 5%, you know, up 1% to 2%. But Dr. Zemmelweis came into a scourge in that if you went to a hospital and gave birth, your death rate was as high as 1 in 3, up to 35% of moms and newborns were dying in this hospital. And he's looking around and saying, this is a real problem. How is it, like literally you could give birth to a child in an alleyway and have a better chance of surviving than if you went to the best medical doctors that the world had at that time. And Dr. Zemmelweis looks at this and he says, this is, this is bad, but he, but he had an idea. And he said, maybe, just maybe, doctors should wash their hands after they touch dead bodies before they go deliver a baby. Just maybe. And so sure enough, he instituted this policy at his hospital. He made the doctors wash their hands and immediately the death rate went back down to a normal you know, 1.1 to 2% mortality rate for mothers and newborns. And you can guess 
how the medical community reacted to this amazing breakthrough that saved so many lives. They hated him, despised him, and kicked him out of the medical profession. Sure enough. You see, because the problem for Dr. Zemmelweis is that they had not yet discovered germs. Louis Pasteur was the scientist that was going to you know, have that breakthrough, but he wasn't going to have that breakthrough for about another 20 years. And so in the meantime, what you had was Dr. Zemmelweis, who's saying there's something unseen going on, but if we would just wash our hands, it would fix it, whatever it is. And these people looked at him and said, this is crazy. We don't know what you're talking about. We can't see any reason why this would make any difference at all. There's no objective science. There's no, nothing about it other than the fact that it's managed to you know, save people's lives. But because he said there was this unseen thing going on, they didn't believe him. And even though it had results, it, le- it meant that he um, finished his life as a broken, discredited doctor and a broken man. And so what I'm asking you this morning is to please not treat me like Dr. Zemmelweis. Because I'm going to say something this morning that I know is probably going to sound weird to at least some of you and frankly, most of you. And that's this, that I believe there is something unseen going on in each and every one of our sufferings. I think that there are unseen forces at work in our lives that I cannot prove in the same way that Zemmelweis couldn't prove that there were germs. He didn't know about germs. He just knew that there was something going on that was unseen that, that he could fix with washing his hands. Uh, and so I'm just going to ask you now that, that this is probably going to sound a little hard and a little skeptical, and I'll explain why in a second, but, but maybe just for a few minutes, give me the benefit of the doubt that there is something unseen going on behind all of our sufferings. All right, and so the first unseen thing is this, um, that I believe that there is something called original sin. And it is an unseen force that works for the decay, corruption, and breaking down of our bodies, our minds, the entire world around us. You know, sin is not just, oh, you did something wrong uh, and God's mad at you. Sin is a a very real reality uh, that none of this world, none of our bodies, none of our minds are the way they were designed to be. They are corrupted and decaying and breaking down all around us. And so some of our sufferings are caused by this sin. Again, not like an active choice necessarily, although it can be, but just the fact that we are broken. We're broken people. And so you can have someone who, you know, you know drinks some alcohol and goes driving and, and wraps their car on a telephone pole. And, and, and to some extent, that's fair. That was their sin. Um, it's tragic. It's harsh. Um, but, you, but you at least say, well, you, you made that bad choice. You know, that, that was your fault. The problem, though, is that's only one of the reasons that suffering and tragedy can happen. The other three are not your fault. So the second thing that can happen is this. It could be another's sin. That family that's just driving home and gets hit by the drunk driver, they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't deserve the suffering or the tragedy. But it was someone else's sin that had a tragic consequence in their own life. And so sin is this pervasive reality that we cannot get away from. Tsunamis and, and, and things that go wrong in the world are a result of the fact that creation was broken when Adam and Eve sinned. Mental health and, and those kinds of issues are things that are because our minds are not what they were designed to be. Sin causes so much struggling and suffering. But that's not the only unseen force that's out there. There's another one. And, and this is where I'm going to just tell you, I'm going to lose some of you. Because according to surveys... Even Christians, Christians who believe the Bible, love God, um, six out of ten Christians don't believe in a literal devil. 
This idea that there's a malevolent spiritual force out there that's against us. They think that the devil's just kind of a bogeyman, uh, something the Bible uses to kind of scare us into being good. Uh, And so I know I might lose some of you here because I actually do believe in a literal, personal, malevolent spiritual force, the devil, and that he is against us. The Bible says that the devil is constantly prowling around looking for someone to devour, looking to undo anything that God might be wanting to do in our lives. And if we don't know that that's an unseen force, then we are clueless to those attacks. There's no way to defend against them. But again, I want to be real careful. That's only one of the causes. Maybe the devil uh, is inflicting a spiritual attack on you. Maybe he isn't. Uh, And then finally, there's one more unseen force behind our suffering. And this is the one that's um, maybe even going to be the hardest yet. That I believe that there is an all-powerful God who loves us. And that that God sometimes gives us suffering and struggle because that's part of his own divine discipline for his children. Just like I might take my son and throw him in the deep end of the pool because I know that's going to be a way that it's going to force him to learn how to swim, which I wouldn't do that. I'm not able to do like that. That would be too mean. Like I'd jump in and save him right away. Uh, It wouldn't work. But this idea that God is actually doing something in our suffering and it's a loving act on God's part because he's got some divine discipline that he wants to do in our lives. And I feel very confident in saying to you that I think any suffering that you may have ever experienced, any struggles that you may have had were caused by one of these four things. But here's the problem. You see, the problem is I cannot tell you for any specific instance of suffering and struggle, I cannot tell you which of these four it was. I can't. I don't know. I I can speculate. I can surmise. um, But the reality is we cannot see the unseen things. We can know they're there. In the same way that Dr. Zemmelweis knew there was something unseen going on, but he didn't know what a germ was. We can know that this is happening, but because we cannot see the unseen thing, things, we don't know which one it might be. And I'll share with you, I, I had a story of suffering this last summer. When my wife and I uh, you know, got called here to St. John, we were so excited. One of the first things we wanted to do was buy a house here in the area. And so uh, we bought a house uh, in Baldwin. And I'll, and I'll tell you, if you don't know the life of a seminarian, uh, it's basically the life of getting as broke as you possibly can before you then start a job at a church somewhere and start getting some of your money back. Uh, and so we sold our house in Colorado. We, we kind of went through all of our savings uh, and I basically just sa- saved just enough. You know, I, I told my wife that we wanted to be able to buy a house when we were done with seminary. We wanted to be able to live by our church wherever it ended up being, it ended up being here at St. John. Uh, and so we had saved the last of our life savings so that we could buy a house. Uh, and we found a house that was a little cheaper than our than what money we had. And so it was great because it was a small house, but we could immediately build in some things. Like we could build in a a second bathroom uh, for a family of five. And and we we had just enough cushion that we could use the last of our life savings to put a down payment on this house, to have a little bit left over that we could put in a second bathroom, kind of fix up the house so it was up to what our family needed. Uh, And then that was it. That was was all the money we had. Like we had carefully timed out the seminary life to get us to that point. And so we, we bought the house, we, we put all money down, we, we had our savings, uh, we met with a bunch of contractors and it was all either too expensive or they couldn't get to us in time. And, but we finally found a contractor, uh, we gave him a check, we, we wrote him a big check, gave him most of our money 
Uh, and then he said, great, he came in, he demolished our house the next day, uh, jackhammered up the bathroom, you know, so we had no functioning bathrooms at all, uh, and then never showed up again. But we'd already put all these plans into motion. Uh, we'd already set up the moving truck. We'd already asked friends to come and help us move. Uh, and, and so the day of moving came, and we'd been trying to get them on the phone. We'd been trying to figure out what was going to happen. We'd been trying to, we, at the very least, we've got to get the bathroom working in. We've got to get a, we have no floor in our bathroom. Uh, but the day came where we had to move in, and we just had to. Like, we'd already, we were out of, you know, the lease was up at our old place. The friends were lined up. The truck was lined up. We had to move in. And so we had to move into a house that had no functioning bathroom, that the walls were all torn up and, and demolished. The floor was all torn up and demolished. Uh, and my wife, whom I've been promising for two years, if you just make it through seminary with me, I'll set you up in a really nice house, honey. And she moves in to a place with no floors, no walls, no bathrooms. And I know in the grand scheme of things, that might not sound like the worst struggle in the world, but when you have nowhere to go number two, it feels really bad. (laughs) And I don't know which of these four things was the unseen cause behind that struggle that we went through this summer. I mean, maybe it was my own sin and brokenness. You know, I, and believe me, I've worked through this list. You know, I didn't do, do enough diligence on this contractor, you know, I, I should have checked his resources uh, more effectively. I should have Google searched him first before we just gave him a bunch of money. I, I should have uh, asked around more and gotten competing bids and, and, and that may, maybe I could have done something better. Maybe it was my own fault that my house was a tragedy and disaster when I moved into it. Maybe it was. Maybe it was, no matter what I did, maybe it was just his sin. Maybe this guy was a, was a good scammer. This is how he, he knows how to talk a good game. He knows how to, you know, bring up enough things just to convince people. And even if I'd been on my best game, he was going to get me or he was going to get somebody because he's just too good at what he's doing. Maybe it was his sin. It wasn't my fault at all. Maybe, maybe it was an active spiritual attack. Maybe the devil's saying, hey, St. John is a healthy church that's doing work for God's kingdom. And they just called a new pastor. Let's make sure I take him out at the knees before he even gets a chance to start in that ministry. Maybe the devil was gunning for me this summer. Or maybe, maybe God was looking at me and knowing that I came from a much smaller church out in Colorado. It was a good church, but but it was nowhere near the size and scope of St. John. It didn't require the same level of efficiency uh, and, and ability to overcome uh, struggles and, and to kind of plan big projects. Uh, you know, it was pretty much the kind of place where if I just made a couple of hospital visits now and then, uh, if I preached a good sermon, I was going to have a successful ministry. But St. John is doing bigger, bolder, riskier things. We're trying to start a house church movement. We're trying to reach people that are not going to be reached through a traditional church model. We're trying to rethink our own reputation and identity so that we can make sure that there is no stumbling block keeping um, people who are seeking and looking for hope from coming to us. And maybe God said, you know what, Doug? You weren't ready for a church this size. You needed kind of some minor setbacks so that you could learn in your own self how to overcome the problems that happen in your life. And maybe God was saying, you know what? Before you have a chance to to have a ministry setback that really derails something you want to do at St. John, maybe let's start you off with a personal setback so that you can learn what it is to overcome uh, and to know that you're not going to be defeated by one person doing a scummy thing to you, that you're going to be able to persevere and move on. Any one of these four would be plausible. Maybe a combination of these four. But the thing is, I don't have to know which of these four is going on to know that God, in fact, is doing something powerful through not only my suffering, 
but yours. It's helpful for me to know this because it's helpful for me to process through and make sure I didn't, uh, you know, that I'm learning what I need to learn. But here's the thing. Even if we don't know which is going on, we can come away from suffering and struggles with hope and trust in God. In the same way that Ignaz Semmelweis didn't know what kind of germs were infecting people, he just knew that if he washed his hands in chlorine and lime, it made a difference. And as certainly as I know that Ignaz Semmelweis was a real person who lived 150 years ago and made an amazing medical breakthrough that has saved so many lives from then until now, I also know that this amazing event happened 2,000 years ago. That a man named Jesus Christ was killed on a cross. And if you don't know this, this is important, I think, for you to know. There is no credible historian, archaeologist, scholar who denies the objective truth that Jesus Christ was killed on a cross 2,000 years ago. No matter how atheistic, no matter how against the faith they are, no matter what their own personal beliefs and religion are, no one denies that this man was killed 2,000 years ago on a cross. The issue is, how do they interpret that awful thing that happened? You know, you can look at this and say, hey, that guy, Jesus, he was a lunatic and a rebel. Uh, and so the Roman Empire, the prevailing power at the time, you know, they put him to death. And he, frankly, he deserved it because that's what you should do to rebels who are crazy. And if that's the true interpretation, then frankly, we should lose heart. We should give up then those assumptions that I shared up front are probably as close as we're going to get to the truth, that it is deterministic, it does disprove God, uh, and that, yeah, there's really nothing for it. But on the other hand, if there is another interpretation of this one seen event, we know that this happened, but if there's another interpretation, then maybe our sufferings can be far more meaningful than what those assumptions would lead us to believe. You see, I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, all four of these things were going on. I believe that the one and only man who has ever been without sin died on behalf of those of us who had sin. That when he came to this earth, the devil attacked and persecuted him and tried to triumph over God's will for our life in the universe by by manipulating events in history to lead Jesus to the cross. But that, in fact, all of that was God's divine plan from the get-go. And that God's love took this horrific, awful suffering moment, a man being tortured to death on a cross and did something powerful and real with it. The Apostle Paul, one of the earliest believers of Jesus, had this to say when he talked about his own struggles in life in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you have your Bible or your phone or tablet, feel free to pull it up. It's also in the pews, in the Bible pews on page 1159. And I want to just give you a little background Paul did not have an easy life. Uh, In fact, there's one chapter where he lists all the bad things that happened to him. He was shipwrecked multiple times and had to survive on a desert island. Uh, He was whipped, beaten. Um, At one point, he was stoned, they thought, to death. They literally stoned him, thought he was dead, uh, and then left. And and, and he was apparently just at the brink, and and his friends were able to come bring him back. But this is a guy that lived through all of the worst things that you could go through. And he's reflecting on those sufferings and struggles in this chapter. So let's look at it. Paul says this, we are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. 
I want to leave this up for a second because this is such a huge connection that Paul is making. When he talks about the death of Jesus, he's actually talking about the very sufferings and struggles that he experienced. He's saying those struggles actually connect me to the suffering and struggles of Jesus himself when he died on the cross. And through that connects me to the life of Jesus. And when he says this, he means the eternal life that is promised to each and every one of us that Jesus accomplished on our behalf. Paul sees a direct link between our suffering to the death of Jesus and through that to the life of Jesus. Now to help you with it, because up till now, you know, I, I'm kind of a cerebral guy and I, I like to work through things process-wise. And, and so Paul works for me because, you know, he works through things as well. But, but let me kind of summarize this um, in a way that's maybe a little more heart um, salient for some of you. Charles Spurgeon, great theologian, kind of summarized this concept by saying this. Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me upon the rock of Christ. I have learned to kiss the wave that dashes me upon the rock of Christ. You see, whatever the unseen cause of suffering is, I believe that there are three sources of hope that we can find if we are willing to trust that there is an unseen thing going on behind the scenes of those struggles. And the first is what Paul is saying here, what Spurgeon is saying when he says that he can kiss the wave that dashes him on the rock of Christ. And it's this, that if Jesus is the ultimate good in the universe, that if Jesus, through his suffering and death, conquered death, conquered sin, conquered the devil, and says to each and every one of us that we have a reward waiting in heaven and that the only path we need to get to be with him uh, is to put our lives in him then anything which drives us closer to Jesus is a good thing. Anything that drives us closer to Jesus is a good thing. Paul's saying the very sufferings that he went through drove him closer to the death and through that to the life of Jesus. Spurgeon is saying that suffering is the thing that makes me trust the rock evermore. And I know I feel, and I think you see it, too in our lives that, that we, we have comparatively comfortable lives compared to any human being in the history of the world. Uh, you know, we have running water when a contractor doesn't knock out our bathroom. Uh, you know, we, we live in a world that we don't have to fear the unexpected death and childbirth of one in three like Zemmelweis was dealing with. We, we have pretty comfortable, safe lives compared to so many who have gone before us which means we don't have to rely on the cross of Christ so much. We don't have to trust God for our ultimate safety and security the way so many people used to do. But if we're willing to lean into our sufferings, then they drive us back to Christ. They drive us back to the one perfect, true, good thing that we know we can rely on, and that's him. Not only that, if we're willing to embrace the suffering, not just run away with it, run away from it or try to protect ourselves from it. If we're willing to embrace suffering, it actually does something inside of us as well. Paul says this in Romans chapter four. He says, we also glory in our sufferings. We, we glory in them. We don't try to dodge them. We don't try to protect ourselves from them. We don't try to minimize them. We glory in our sufferings because we know this. We know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character. And if we stop there, that would be not a bad moral lesson, right? If we stop there, oh great, suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character, great. Sufferings and overcoming struggles is the thing that makes me a better person. And that's true, it does. Having to overcome and work through things does build character in us. 
But here's the thing, Paul doesn't actually stop there. Paul keeps going. He says this, so suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, but what does character ultimately point to? Character points to hope. Let's keep going. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's the hope that doesn't disappoint us. It's not the suffering itself or that it makes us a better person, although it does, and that's a good thing. It's that, that character that we develop through suffering is the thing that helps us rely on the hope that we have from the promise of the life of Christ. You see, when, when this thing happened to us this summer, I, I really wanted to go after this contractor. I wanted, to, I wanted to sue him. I wanted to get our money back. And, and as I was processing and struggling and suffering through this with, with Pastor Dion, uh, he encouraged me with some words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, Jesus makes this point. He says that in any given moment, we are choosing whether we put our hope in the things of this world or the things of the next world. In any moment, we're saying, do I want my reward to happen here on earth or am I willing to do things and struggle and persevere for the sake of the reward in full? Jesus says, those who want their reward here will get it here. But those who are willing to hope in what I say will receive their reward in full in the next life. And so Pastor Dion cautioned me. He said, you know, you can sue this guy. You can, you can try to make it right in this life. Or you can trust that God is watching. That he knows intimately how much you and your family are struggling right now. And that he can and will take care of you. You can put your hope not in making it right or suing someone or getting revenge or payback, but hope in that God is the one who will ultimately make it right. And then thirdly, for those of us that are willing to do this, willing to embrace the suffering, willing to put our hope in something that's not of this world, Paul has this final commendation for us. Therefore, we do not lose heart. If there's nothing unseen going on, if suffering is just the cruel travails of a, of a world that's just divide, decided by evolution and whatever uh, things happen to make people survive or not, then we should lose heart. We should give up. But if there is something unseen going on, then we do not lose heart. If there is a God who is behind even the worst of our sufferings, we do not faint. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. See, Paul's saying that they're actually accomplishing something for us in heaven. These struggles, they might seem meaningless now. They might just seem like the unfair persecution of someone else. It might just seem like, like something that has no way of being redeemed. But in fact, each and every one of our troubles in comparison to eternal glory is light and momentary. And it's actually refining us and making us even more willing to trust Christ to develop our character and it's actually working out our salvation. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal. It might not feel like it right now but any suffering, any struggle you're going through I promise you is temporary. But the unseen things going on behind that struggle are not. They are eternal. And they are the promises of, and hope of God. Ignaz Zemmelweis, I, I don't know what his faith 
background was, but I do know that he was never able to overcome the despair and the struggle of not being believed by the people around him, even though he worked hard and he, had from then, he started a movement that from then until now has saved millions of lives. But when he was rejected and rebuked and, and dismissed from the profession by his peers, it drove him to despair. His mental health deteriorated. He was eventually committed to a lunatic asylum where he was beaten to death by the guards in the asylum. He was unable to believe, even though he could believe that there were germs and that washing your hands could save you, he was unable to make a connection that there was something unseen going on behind his struggles and that that thing was eternal and he let his struggles bear him down to despair and death. Now, my struggles are nowhere near what Zemmelweis's are. Uh, for, you know, for me, having, not having a house in good shape, I mean, it was, it was hard. It was, um, it was a rough season to go through. It wasn't anything like his. But from this point, six months looking back, I would not go back and change that struggling. I, I would not um, try to not use that contractor or, or do something different because something amazing happened out of that. You see, we were pretty trepidatious and fearful of starting a new job in a new place. My wife's never left Colorado. Like the, the, Everything about this was new and a little scary. And what happened as a result of that struggle and suffering this last summer was that we saw so many people from this church rally around us, support us, carry us through what was a hard season in our lives. And all of those good things that happened would not have happened uh, if that struggle hadn't been a moment in our life. We wouldn't have known how loved we were, how valued we were at this church if we hadn't had to overcome and persevere through that struggle, if we hadn't embraced the wave that washed us on the rock of Christ, if we hadn't trusted that God was doing something amazing through our character. And it did. My wife and I, like, we, we are a high-conflict couple, and yet going through that struggle... Um, was something that forced us to band together and overcome in a way that uh, we had not had opportunity to do before. And it was actually a growing, uh, amazing moment in our marriage relationship. But then ultimately to believe that that suffering was just one more thing that is going on God's ledger. And it's something that he is saying, it is achieving for you something far more amazing in heaven. And now I don't know what you're going through. It could be something minor. It could be something far more major than, than my deal with a house. But whatever you are going through, I can promise you this, that in the perspective of heaven, it is light and momentary. That there is an eternal glory that is waiting for you and that you will receive your reward in full when you are united with Christ in heaven. Whatever struggling you're going through now, it is not meaningless. And God will not waste it but he will use it in all of these amazing ways. And whether you see it now or whether it takes when you're standing at the pearly gates looking back on your life, you will see so clearly that God used your struggles for your good and for the good of those around you. And that is guaranteed. Amen. Now in just a few moments, we're going to be celebrating communion. And as we prepare our hearts and our minds for communion, I want to share with you a little story from when Jesus was walking the earth. He was with his disciples, and his disciples said, Lord, we want to be with you in heaven. We want, to, we want to sit at your right hand in heaven. And Jesus said to them, are you willing to drink the cup of suffering that I have to drink? Are you willing to share in this cup of suffering with me? 
because he knew full well that he was going to be tortured to death. He knew full well the struggles that he was going to have to go through for the act of saving the world. And he asked his disciples if they were up to that challenge to share in that cup of suffering. But a few short months later, on the night which he was betrayed and before he was about to be tortured and killed, Jesus sat down at his last supper and he took the same cup and he said to his disciples, it's not only a cup of suffering, it is also the cup of my blood which is shed for you. And he invited them to share in the cup, not just of his sufferings, but also making that connection right there in communion that we are sharing in his life, in his spirit, and in his hopes and desires for us. And so as we get ready for communion, there's going to be a couple of questions on the screen, and I invite you to join me and ponder exactly what Christ is doing in your life right now.